This is the second of a three-part series that I've been doing and um, each of the weeks stands alone, so don't worry if you missed last week, but I'd like to give you the context for it. In uh, Buddhism, there's an understanding that when we pay deep attention, and when I mean deep attention, uh, in a a very non-conceptual, direct way, there are some profound insights that are revealed. This is called prajna, or wisdom. And the wisdom of the Buddhas that arises from this attention have been described as three primary characteristics of reality. Three basic expressions of reality. And we probably are all familiar with them in a kind of um, mental way, but to experience these insights uh, experientially, directly, is liberating. And any one of them, they're all totally interrelated, but any one of them can free us. And last week we explored the first of the three, which is described as dukkha, which is the unsatisfactoriness that when we're in our kind of habitual daily trance, there's always some feeling of not quite right. Sometimes dukkha is described as suffering and it's anguish. And that's the dukkha we're mostly familiar with hearing about. But actually that's not... um, Dukkha is unsatisfactoriness. It's a kind of a sometimes very subtle restlessness that as if we're waiting for our life to get started or waiting for things to be okay or wanting to change something. So we talked about uh, dukkha last night last time. And this week we're talking about what's called anicca, which is change. The impermanence, the, uh, the quality of change that's absolutely um, essential or an essential expression of life itself. And then next week will be anatta, which is selflessness or emptiness, which um, sometimes when you start talking about it, people go crazy and say, I'm done with Buddhism. <laughs> but it'll be fine because we'll do it in a way that I think you'll find some some way of relating to it. <laughs> so as I said, these are all called Dharma doorways. Dharma is the path, and each one of them, most people find that one or two of them are more natural for our temperaments. So we find, for some people, if it's dukkha, it's like really starting to register. On some level, I'm always dissatisfied. Things are never quite right. And then really getting how we're caught in a sense of separation or insufficiency. And when we are willing to pay deep attention, and this is the key, deep attention, each of these has a gift. And when we pay deep attention to suffering or dissatisfaction, a profound quality of compassion arises. Profound compassion. And it's a liberating compassion. We're no longer caught in the dukkha, we're resting in compassion. It's a dharma doorway. Similarly, anicca, this non-conceptual understanding of change can be a liberating doorway and that's what we're going to be exploring tonight. So, first off, this characteristic of anicca, of change, is something that anybody you talk to will go, yeah, I get that one. Yeah, life's changing, the seasons are changing. Look, look at this week compared to last week. You know, there's a lot more bare limbs, there's just that rust kind of color left in some trees, and and this week the election's over, and last week we were in the, you know, 
rows of it and some of us are getting gray, we can see that, that's a Nietzsche, <laughs> you know. We're replacing cars all the time, we're replacing hips or, you know, it's like stuff keeps happening. So we get a Nietzsche, you know, we get that it's all changing. One student fell into a cycle of classes and studying and working and sleeping and he didn't realize how long he had neglected writing home until he got this following note, and I'll read it to you. Dear son, your mother and I enjoyed your last letter. Of course, we were much younger then and more impressionable. <laughs> Love, Dad. <laughs> so, Heraclitus said, the Greek philosopher said, you can't step into the same river twice. We get it's changing, changing, changing. Dean Inge writes, when our first parents were driven out of paradise, Adam is believed to remark to Eve, my dear, we live in an age of transition. You know? <laughs> and whenever I talk to anybody, you know, there's a sense of, oh yeah, my life, lots is going on, this is happening, you know, there's a sense of stuff happening. But when we explore more closely, it's usually a cognitive understanding of change and there's not an immediate sense of how moment to moment every sensation, every sound, every part of phenomena is absolutely in motion. It's more mental. So we'll talk about that. Now in the Bhagavad Gita, and this is when Arjuna is talking with Lord Krishna, he, he says, what's the most amazing thing that you've seen created on this earth? And the response? The most amazing thing is that human beings can see people all around them aging and dying and think on some level it won't really happen to them. So there's this part of this trance that we're in is the sense of I'm a permanent fixture in this universe even though on another level we all can say oh, of course I'm going to die. But on some level the rest of the universe is wheeling around and we're this kind of fixed center. And as a culture, aging and death is um, something that we cast as not okay. It's almost, um, it's like an embarrassment or something, like to actually when it starts seeming like it's going to happen to someone, it's kind of a little bit of, it's oppressive and embarrassing rather than the fact that every entity that has ever incarnated in the history of the universe incarnates and then dissolves, it still feels in some way like an unfair, bad, not okay, embarrassing thing. So we do a lot. We shield our children in some way from it and we do a lot to kind of um, avoid, avoid... Um, we dress up our corpses so they look like they're alive. I read one, I read one thing, let's see... A father is at a beach with his children when a four-year-old son ran up to him, grabbed his hand and led him to the shore where a seagull lay dead in the sand. Daddy, what happened to him? the son asked. Well, he died and went to heaven, the dad replied. The boy thought for a moment and said, did God throw him back down? You know. <laughs> so, the way what happens is that we don't like groundlessness, we don't like the sense that it's all out of control, we don't like the reality that it's all going, going, gone. And so what we do instead is we tighten our body against it, we stay very, very busy, 
And we live a lot in our thoughts. And the one way to avoid a radical sense of impermanence is to stay in your thoughts. Because thoughts create a kind of fixed world. Thoughts kind of stabilize things. Thoughts let us keep a kind of static routine. It's a more predictable world when we're in our mental stories and our dialogue. We're kind of one step removed from the living stream of experience. So we manage our experience. It's like John O'Donohue said, we're so busy managing our experience so as to um, not see this mystery we're a part of. And we manage our experience by staying in our thoughts because our thoughts are these representations. They keep us from the actual living, vibratory, changing, wild, uncontrollable experience. Now, what happens when we stay in our thoughts, when we resist the immediacy of experience is that we're not fully living it. It's like... um, Watts said, he said, it's like winding our watch on the way to the gallows. It's like we're kind of busy and occupied with our stuff and here we are, you know, we're going to die, but we don't actually relate to it. Um, And again, this isn't about fixating on dying, it's like opening to the fact that it's all changing. So what happens when we're not living in the immediacy of that, when we're not feeling the vibration and the rolling seasons of our own heart and mind and being when we're kind of living in a mental world is that we're cut off from our spontaneity. There's no way to be spontaneous if we're living in our thoughts. Life's like a dress rehearsal then. We're kind of waiting for the real thing, going through the motions. When we're living in our thoughts and we're not like in the midst, Um, in some way we're holding back our full attention. We're not wholehearted. And we haven't jumped into the changing currents. We're not connected to it. And there's some of the kind of... some of the moods that happen when we're living in our thoughts is that a lot of it's judging. We spend a lot of our time judging. We spend a lot of our time figuring out things. So instead of being in this changing current, we're kind of figuring out things. And there's also kind of cynicism because we're not authentically meeting the moment. There's a sense of something's wrong but we're not really a part of it. I like this description. A linguistics professor was lecturing to his class one day in English and he said, a double negative forms a positive. In some languages though, such as Russian, a double negative is still a negative. However, there is no language wherein a double positive can form a negative. A voice from the back of the room piped up, Yeah, right. (laughs) (laughs) So again, I'm trying to give you a sense of the mood of when we kind of are not in the currents of our life, in the immediacy, when we're living in thoughts because every one of these three characteristics is blocked. We can't see reality when we're living in thoughts. We can't really get what dukkha is if we're in our thoughts. We cannot truly understand radical impermanence, changing, appearing, dissolving, the truth of mortality if we're living in our thoughts. And it makes us not fully alive. It's like our way to avoid dying 
stops us from being fully alive. So one way is we're cut off from the spontaneity. In another way, when we're in our thoughts, we can't actually see who is here. If you're living in your thoughts, you can't perceptually bring up, bring and sense who's inside you and who you're with. You can't connect. Now let me read you a, a short verse from T.S. Eliot. He says, What we know of other people is only our memory of the moments during which we knew them, and they have changed since then. We must also remember that at every meeting we are meeting a stranger. So when we step out of this immediacy, this mystery, this current of what's right here, we're also stepping out of picking up who's here. We forget that each being is changing in a very dynamic, alive, real way. And instead we're living in our idea of who that person is. You can think of anyone in your life that you see regularly. And just in a moment you might sense, well, how am I usually relating to that person? And do you have like an idea of who they are, of what they want, where they're at? Or is there a living kind of investigation, moment to moment, like, where are you right now? Who are you right now? What's alive for you right now? Most of the time it's assumption. It's our mental idea of someone. Check it out. This is a whole different Dharma talk. I didn't quite mean to go there, but because it's such an interesting one. It has to do with living relationships. But again, if we're living in thoughts, we can't see who's looking out at us through those eyes. We can't feel the heart that's there. We're living in our representational world. Okay, so again, we're talking about when we pull back from this impermanent changing flow of life and live in thoughts, we lose our spontaneity, we're not able to see really what's right here, and in a basic way, and this is the third point I want to make, we don't value the moment. We sense, oh, it's all going to keep on happening, it's all here, it's forever. In some way, it's just like it's all... We just kind of assume, assume this kind of permanence. And there's not a cherishing of this fleeting, beautiful life. There's not a cherishing. We don't value the moments. So there is a basic teaching about this Dharma doorway that says by learning to pay attention in an immediate, non-conceptual way to the changing moment-to-moment experience, the very things that get cut off, that spontaneity, that immediacy of knowing what's here, and that cherishing, come back to life. And it's interesting that, in particular, when we remember death, in a visceral way, not like an idea of it. When we really get dying, all of that springs up. And again, it's not um, morbid, it's just a sense of we really get the mystery when we get dying. We get something bigger than our small idea of things. So here's an interesting um, point I, I heard recently, or was reminded of, that when Scrooge made his shift towards a more kind and giving person. It was right after he had an encounter with the ghost of Christmas future 
and saw his name on a grave. That was the pivotal moment. Now many of us know in our own lives a certain diagnosis or losing somebody or about to lose someone and how it just cracks us open to what really matters. Change, loss, that everything is moving. It keeps our hearts tender and awake. So there's this whole new kind of batch of research that has come up on what happens when people are reminded of death in a really direct, vibrant way. What's a healthy way of of handling that fear? And what a lot of this research is showing is that when faced with mortality, the healthy tendency is to seek connection to things larger than ourselves, to the values and ties that will outlive our physical existence. And this is what, in my language, or in in Buddhist language, is called true refuge. When we realize, oh, okay, this body is mortal, then our effort is to connect to, well, what is timeless? To connect to the awareness and the love that's timeless. It's our wisdom that knows to do that. I think in the Carlos Castaneda books, there's a description in the stories of the sorcerer Don Juan of death on our left shoulder and how it's a gift to remember. Because when there's that remembering, then we connect to what's more vast and more true. We don't grasp to what's right here so much. Okay, I'll tell you one more piece of research that I I liked. They interviewed people in front of a funeral home and some people in front of a funeral home and some people at a distance and um, the interview were questions about charity. And the people that were interviewed that were right in front of the funeral home were much more positive about charitable donations. <laughs> and they said that kindness and generosity were qualities that were personally important to them. You know, I guess you feel like you're going to go. It's like, you know, what, you know, what can you take with you? But, um, but there's a sense of getting in touch with what matters. You know what I mean? Like when we realize that it's really a changing universe and we're not here forever. So how do we practice? So how, how do we actually enter this Dharma gateway of Anicca? The words of Suzuki Roshi to me are really beautiful. He says, renunciation, now there's this letting go, doesn't consist really of giving up the things of the world, but in accepting that they go away. Renunciation does not consist in giving up the things of this world, but in accepting that they go away. So we practice in meditation this recognizing and allowing the impermanent nature of life. We practice coming out of our thoughts and being with this changing play of sensations and moods, the sadness, the fear, the clutches in the heart, the blissing feelings, You know, we just practice letting it all be there and realizing it's just a flow, like letting go again and again into the changing flow, really stepping right into the river, into the currents. And as you know, what happens when we're practicing, and then we're pretty aware of this, is that we leave the changing flow. Every one of us leaves it and we go right into those thoughts 
and we've kind of disconnected from the vibrancy and the immediacy of, of our body and our senses and we're off in you know, what we have to do tomorrow and we're afraid we're going to forget so we're making a mental note. And then somebody says, if you found you've been drifting in thoughts. <laughs> you know? It's amazing how sometimes the voice comes in right when you've most been off there and it's like, you know. The practice is no big deal. Just re-enter the stream. I'll tell you, you know Julia Childs, the uh, world-famous cook? She gives great instructions for meditation. She says, if you drop the lamb, just pick it up. Who will know? Keep going. (laughs) I don't know, I heard that recently. I thought that was a great... (laughs) So, the practice of Anicca really, that this radical insight into impermanence comes from exactly what we're practicing here, which is over and over, notice when we've separated out into that kind of staticness of thought, where we're kind of in a representational world, and just re-arrive into the currents. Maybe, let's just pause for a few moments. Let's just practice a little bit of this anicca. Part of re-entering the flow is in a way to relax the tightness in our body. The body tightens in order to resist the aliveness, as if we don't quite trust it. So to re-enter the changing flow, the mystery, the wildness of this life, there's there's a kind of conscious intention to relax. And in that way, relaxing is a bit courageous. It's like saying, okay, I'm going to entrust myself to the waves. You might take a few full breaths. And with each exhale, see how much is possible to let go. Nice, long, deep breaths. So we relax the armoring and then notice that as you begin to soften, letting the shoulders down, softening the hands, the belly, you can become aware of the vibration and the movement and the flow of sensation. If you feel very disconnected from your body, perhaps just your hands. As we do so often, let the whole awareness be in the hands and soften them even a little more right now. Can you sense Nietzsche, this change in your hands? Just the patterns of pulsing and tingling and vibrating in the hands. Is anything holding still? 
the direct experience of Anicca knows it's all moving. Feel the arms and relax as you feel them from the inside. Feel the feet and the legs. Until you can gradually widen to include the whole field of sensation. Notice how everything's moving. And keep letting go into it and letting go into it. Letting it be, letting it be. And you can include sound. There's nothing to do. In fact, any doing will be a veil that covers over Anicca, that tightens against it. Just listening. Letting the river of sound wash through you. Is anything holding still? Sound, sensation, the different moods or weather systems that move through us. All that incarnates from these bodies to these sounds, moves, changes, dissolves. Thus shall ye think of all this fleeting world, a star at dawn, a bubble in a stream, a flash of lightning in a summer cloud, a flickering lamp, a phantom, and a dream. This from the Buddhist scriptures. for these last few moments, just listening to and feeling this changing dance of life. And sensing the possibility of totally letting be, just resting. When the mind gets hitched into thoughts, we notice and relax back into the changing stream, 
letting go over and over into the life that's right here. So I hope you're getting a bit of a sense that this Dharma gateway of Anicca really is right built into our practice. This is not something different as much as just one dimension that you can pay particular attention to, which is coming out of thoughts, experiencing what's here and sensing how it's all changing, and then just letting go into those currents. So I'd like to use the last part of this exploration is to spend a little more time on what the, the liberating gifts of a direct realization of impermanence is. And the first one, when we truly open to this changing flow, is peace. All of the, the violence and the tension and the fear in our life comes from resisting change, resisting death. When we stop resisting great natural peace opens up. The Thai teacher Ajahn Chah puts it this way, if you let go a little, you'll find a little peace. If you let go a lot, you'll find a lot of peace. If you let go absolutely, you'll find absolute peace and tranquility. When we really get that life is changing, that you really can't hold on. As I described last week, it's like a moving rope, trying to grasp a moving rope. You get rope burned, you can't hold on. Our constant project to make things the way we want to, to stop things we don't want from happening or to get things we want to, to stay with us, it can't work. When we really get that it's all changing in this radical, immediate way, there can be a kind of letting go that allows us to touch that absolute great and natural peace. The Buddha basically said it this way, he said, develop a mind that clings to nothing. So there's just this absolute letting be of this changing world. One of my uh, very dear friends, she lives in uh, North Carolina, um, about five years ago now, she and her be- one of her best friends, Kitty, a woman of 82, had planned a trip to go to Thailand. And Kitty had been an artist and was an artist, and she had a lot of suffering. She had been striving all her life, and she found herself at 82 wondering, how come I'm still striving? I mean, when am I going to just relax and enjoy? So leading up to the trip, she asked Janie, who's a Dharma teacher, to help guide her a little bit in just sensing, okay, life is changing, life's gonna, this, le- this form's gonna end, how can I let go and just enjoy? How can I just be? So Janie kind of became a spiritual mentor for her and guided her in just noticing every time she was kind of resisting or grasping how to just pay attention, okay, it's all happening, it's all changing, let go into the, into the currents, let go, just the way we're talking about. And, and Kitty began to really, um, she rested in a way she had never rested. And, and her art continued, but from a kind of different place. 
And so then they went off on this trip. And the first couple of days was just, it was, it was a joy. There was a lot of uh, spontaneity and ease and they enjoyed very much being with each other. And then they got into a car accident and it was a horrific car accident and it was fatal for, Ka- for um, Kitty. Janie called me after she got home and described it and how Kitty didn't die right away but how she, something in her was just let go, let go, let go and, and she let go so easily and sweetly. It was one of the, the beautiful deaths. And for Janie, similarly, it was a crushing loss and again there was a space of letting go. doesn't mean she didn't grieve, she mourned deeply but there was a blessing in the grief that she touched peace, a peace that she said was exquisite in the midst of it also. That's a story that's really sad. It doesn't have to be sad. It's the same theme though. It's like whatever it is, when we truly let it be just as it is, truly open our hands, in that opening our hands, we find a space of peace that's profound. So that's the first of the great gifts of seeing it's all changing, just let it happen. The second great gift, uh, Sogyal Rinpoche, a um, Tibetan teacher, put it this way, he said, he asked the question, if everything changes, then what is true? Like if everything in your experience is changing, then what do you know is true? And he said that when, our, when we really inquire in a deep way, we discover that all that's here is a timeless awareness. That there is a stillness, a changelessness, what's called the deathless, that is aware of this changing world. And we drop into and inhabit that vastness, that timeless presence. If everything we know to be self changes, then what is true? everything that we think is me changes, then what's true? This timeless loving presence. I heard a a story um, some years ago about uh, the writer Kafka, that when he was an older man he spent a lot of time sitting in a park. And one day a little girl walked by him and she had tears running down her face and he asked her to stop and tell him what was wrong and she told him that she was missing her doll. And he, and he said that he'd look around, he tried, he didn't find it, so he said, come back, I'll see if I can find her. So a few days later the girl returns and Kafka's there and there's no doll but there's a note and she reads it and the note says, I've gone off to travel around the world, please don't worry about me, I'm fine. <laughs> the girl's somewhat relieved, she returns to the park every week or so and each time Kafka would be there with a note from the doll, and the girl would read it, and he'd, and he'd read it to her and tell of the doll's adventures. <laughs> this is such a cool story. Anyway, Kafka got much sicker, and he went to the park one last time. And this time he had brought a doll, and he handed it to the girl, and he said that the travels had really changed her. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Some years later, when the girl was a young woman, she found and read a note that had been rolled up and placed in the doll's hand. I want to read that to you. You will lose everyone you love, 
but the love will always return in new forms. And in a way, those new forms are expressions of the loving presence that can never go away. The objects that we love, the beings come and go, but the loving presence, which is really gazing through each of our eyes, living through each of our hearts, is absolutely timeless and eternal. It can never be lost. So the gift of anicca, of opening to the truth of change, is opening to that timeless presence, that timeless love that can never be taken from us. So that's the second gift. There's peace, and then there's really that wisdom of of recognizing what's timeless. And we open up to what's changing, we recognize the changeless. The third gift, which I mentioned earlier, just to say a little more about, is that it's only when we really open to the fact that it's impermanent and changing, do we cherish in a way that with an open hand, it's not a grasping, but an open-handed cherishing. Do you ever get that strange feeling of vuja day? Not deja vu, vuja day. It's a distinct sense that somehow something just happened that has never happened before. Nothing seems familiar. And then suddenly the feeling is gone. Vuja day. <laughs> So this cherishing, one of my favorite descriptions, I, I read you a few moments ago the um, quote from Ajahn Chah who said, let go a little and you get a little peace and let go a lot and a lot of peace. And let go absolutely and you get absolute peace. He was asked a lot about cherishing what we have. And Ajahn Chah had this really beautiful cup and he, um, like, that he drank out of regularly. He had tea in it and so on. And he used it every day, and he treated it with great care. And so finally a student said, well, aren't you attached? I mean, we're talking about everything comes and goes, aren't you attached to this? And he said, nope, every day I imagine this cup shattered. And it's in a million pieces, shattered. And then I just simply enjoy the cup in this moment, this sip, this feeling, this look. Every day it's shattered, and then I enjoy just this moment. Meet this life with a mind that clings to nothing. And then you can cherish the particulars, moment by moment, in a way that's exquisite. See the beauty. You can see the beauty of this fall and every rotation of the globe and every new part of the season, whether it's a gray day and it's cooler and it's just the rust in that cool gray day or it's one of the more glorious, brilliant days, each one is absolutely cherished and they're not, the cherishing isn't different because it's a quality of presence that clings to nothing. This is the poet John Seuss. To be of the earth is to know the restlessness of being a seed, the darkness of being planted, the struggle toward the light, the pain of growth into the light, the joy of bursting and bearing fruit, the love of being food for someone, the scattering of your seeds, the decay of the seasons, the mystery of death, and the miracle of birth. So in this practice that 
you might think on the cushion or in your chair on Wednesday night seems simple or, okay, I'm being with the breath, I'm opening to this, is actually a practice in being able to wake up out of the trance and into this mysterious flow of life. And in so doing, it becomes this gateway that really allows us to touch that peace, to realize that which is timeless, and to cherish the changing forms without grasping. That's the gift of this Dharma gateway. So, um, as I mentioned, next week we're going to explore very related to that, the gateway of seeing the truth of what we are, which is really not having that solid center of selfness that we experience. And we'll find it's very linked to, um, to this experience of a Nietzsche of change. So let's, as a way maybe to close, um, I'm going to give you a little bit homework after we close, but um, take another moment to pause again. We come to experience Anicca in formal meditation as we wake up out of thought. And right now, just to pause and feel your body and again sense, is anything holding still? To listen to sound. to listen to and feel this changing moment-to-moment experience. To sense the vividness and mystery when we're not holding on to anything, when we've let go into this changing flow. when we face that it all dissolves, it all goes and opens to that. The poet Hafiz writes a poem called Deepening the Wonder that describes the um, power of opening to the impermanence of this form He says, death is a favor to us, but our scales have lost their balance. The impermanence of the body should give us great clarity, deepening the wonder in our senses and eyes of this mysterious existence we share and are surely just traveling through. The impermanence of the body should give us great clarity deepening the wonder in our senses and eyes of this mysterious existence we share and are surely just traveling through. If I were in the tavern tonight, Haviz would call for drinks, and as the master poured, I would be reminded that all I know of life and myself is that we are just a mid-air flight of golden wine between his pitcher and his cup. I would be reminded that all I know of life and myself is that we are just a mid-air flight of golden wine between his pitcher and his cup. If I were in the tavern tonight, 
I would buy freely for everyone in this world because our marriage with the cruel beauty of time and space cannot endure very long. Death is a favor to us, but our minds have lost their balance. The miraculous existence and impermanence of form always makes the illumined ones laugh and sing. May our hearts open to these changing forms, this changing world. May it allow us to rest in great peace, in wonder and in freedom. Namaste. Now, I mentioned homework since this is a three-week series and it's part of our Dharma Studies program. I'm I'm forced to give you homework. But you don't have to do it. It's just a possibility. (laughs) And the homework is to have a daily practice, even if it's just for a few minutes where you pause, get quiet, relax and pay attention to your senses and just notice how it's all changing. Let that be a filter that you kind of cultivate in your sitting practice. And then through the day, any time you remember, pause and just sense if you can let go of thoughts and feel how this impermanent flow of life is happening right here, just for a short pause. So it becomes familiar. And the next week we will take the third characteristic and explore it together. Okay? Okay, thank you. Blessings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.